filmography of a director, film by film. I'm one of your co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez. And I'm Brian Connolly, the other guy. All right, so it's Coppola cast right now. And we are starting what I'm going to call Coppola the writer years, writer for hire. He began his career, career with Roger Corman, making uh, low-budget horror movies. And now, the movie we're going to talk about today is This Property is Condemned. Ooh. Ooh. His first studio movie, I would say. Then. Yeah. This is his first experience of working with a studio. But before we get deep into the movie, we're going to talk about the beverage that we have. So since we're doing Coppola, we, uh, we're lucky enough to have a filmmaker who also owns a wine, successful you know, winery. And so we're going to review as best of our limited knowledge of wine as possible, a uh, Francis Coppola wine. So this week we are doing the Francis Coppola Diamond Collection Sauvignon Blanc 2017. And let me just read the back of this because this is better than what I could actually come up with. Dramatic style, vibrant packaging, and fruit-forward smooth wines are the signatures of Francis Coppola Diamond Collection. Our Sauvignon Blanc delivers a beautiful perfume of tangerine. Do you taste the tangerine? Or do you smell the tangerine? Maybe smell it. Pink grapefruit and honeysuckle. Followed by juicy flavors of tropical fruit, zesty citrus, and a hint of minerals. Delicious with grilled fish, I believe that. Or spring greens with fruit and goat cheese. Ooh. So there you go. I like goat cheese. Healthy. This is a good. This is a good healthy meal wine. All that fruit. It's got to be good. <laughs> and this is a good, great wine for today because in Texas it's like a hundred million degrees outside. Yeah, it's, it's like one hundred and one. Um, so this is perfect, like a nice chilled uh, white wine. And this is it's like this is a good. It's not. I definitely get that uh, fruity. What is it? Bouquet fragrance. <laughs> and yeah, I get. Like some citrusy, uh, citrusy flavor in there, but not too strong. Yeah. Like I think the wine we had last time was, was strong. Was like a stronger flavor. Yeah, this one is a nice. It's a little smoother. It still has that kind of nice little aftertaste of, of like that kind of. It's got that nice smooth kind of end. Like it starts a little. Like I don't know how to talk about wine, but it has that bitter kind of beginning. And then it ends smoothly. But uh, I like it. This is good. This is the kind of wine you can drink quickly, I feel. Like, white wine goes pretty fast. Red wine lasts a while. Lasts a while. But red white wine, wine, red wine you, you need have to have something two, to go with it. Like, like a steak, like yeah. a porterhouse steak. Whereas a white wine, all you need to go with it is another bottle of white wine because you're going to finish the one quickly. Yep. Go right into the next one. Pairs perfectly with white wine. <laughs> this Sauvignon Blanc pairs perfectly with another bottle of Sauvignon Blanc. Isn't it interesting with wine? This is probably the dumbest thing to say for anyone listening who actually knows about wine. It's just made from grapes, but then they say it tastes like oranges and smells like honeysuckle and all these things. But it's just it's just different ways of fermenting and aging mm. grape juice. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know anything about um, vineyarding, if that's not that, a word that the I word just made vineyarding? up. I believe I just made it up. <laughs> You know, I'll, I'll, say make, I'll say making wine. <laughs> so I don't know if they, you know, if they uh, they stomp on the grapes or whatever they do, and then they like uh, scrape in some orange zest. <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's just some grapes and how they like, how they get those flavors in there. Somehow. I think the flavors from like the barrels that they're aged in, you know, or mm. whatever. So if you have some aged in like a bourbon barrel, you pick up some of that stuff, and you know. Stuff from the wood, mm-hmm. the oakiness of certain wines and things. And then they have the new wine. They have wines now that are aged in steel, like stainless steel. And that way uh-huh. it's like a more pure like taste because you don't have all the – you don't have the stuff pulled in from the wood. Mm-hmm. Um, alcohol, a very interesting thing. Yeah. <laughs> all right. This property is condemned. So Coppola – we just the last few episodes he's doing all these low budget Roger Corman things and I bet he just decided he wanted to actually make some money because in my mind Roger Corman is like hey kid you know I'll let you like if you work really hard on this I'll give you like a sweet producer credit but I won't, I won't really pay you it's kind of how trauma works now from what I heard or always has worked or just sort of like it's like the intern system system basically it's also like what it's like to work for Terrence Malick where it's like 
so many people want to work with me that, you know, I don't need to pay you, kid. You just, like, you hold a light and you tell everybody you worked on, you know, some Terrence Malick movie and, uh, and I can save some money. <laughs> so yeah. I think that's definitely how Roger Corman worked. But everyone kind of knew that going in. And it was just kind of almost worked as a film school, as a way to just get the, get the experience. So now Coppola wants to actually make some money. And so how better way, to, what a better way to make money than to write, like, a, a real, a true Hollywood movie. It is. With like, this is like a re, like this is, it's 1966. We're not quite in New Hollywood yet. So this is still sort of the end of that kind of studio system where you can have these sort of big movies. And this movie isn't like huge, but it definitely has like the star power behind it. You have Robert Redford, Natalie Wood, a fresh-faced, as if you can call it that, Charles Bronson, a very young... Robert Blake. Robert Blake. <laughs> and you've got a slightly older Mary Badham, a.k.a. Scout from To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, in one of the few movies she did. And if you look, if you can find it, there's a very young, clean-shaven Dabney Coleman in this movie. Oh, I As a salesman. That. You would never recognize him because you know Dabney Coleman as like grouchy 60-year-old with mustache. Here he is just a young, handsome, unshaven, or shaved, shaved uh, you know, man. But this movie, it feels like a Hollywood movie. It's, it's directed by Sidney Pollack, kind of at the beginning of his career. He did a bunch of TV and did one movie before this. And then this is like the beginning of many, many movies he will make of Robert Redford. Many, many, many movies. Yeah. <laughs> Robert Redford. Uh, like he did uh, Jeremiah Johnson, uh, The Three Days of the Condor, Out of Africa, Havana, which nobody remembers, his early night. The last one he did was... Robert, early 90s movie called Havana, uh, and a few others. Away We Were. Um, and it just, it feels like a Hollywood movie. It doesn't really, in my mind, break any rules or barriers. It's like a very straightforward... It's a very straightforward well, drama. It's kind of unremarkable yeah. then and now and I imagine then, for audiences that watch it then, because this film was not a big... Hit. Um, it was meant to be a comeback vehicle for Natalie Wood, who had had a couple of flops big before then. West Side Story, and then kind of flopped out. Then did yeah. this. Didn't really work. Yeah. But then was able to come back with uh, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. And then she died, mysteriously. <laughs> was it Robert Blake? We don't Robert know. Robert Wagner. I, I don't know. Well, yeah, we don't know. <laughs> Christopher Walken made. Was it Robert Wagner? But here she is hanging out with has Robert Blake. To do with it, maybe. I don't know. We're only speculating. Yeah. Who could it be? <laughs> so, uh, the way Coppola got here, and the way we got here, then, was that he uh, one of his screenplays, his original screenplays, got the Samuel Goldwyn Award, and that got the attention of studios. So he got offered a job from uh, Seven Arts Productions. So they hire him to adapt a screenplay of a novel called Reflections in a Golden Eye, uh, which later became a John Huston movie. With, a very weird movie. With Brando and... Robert uh, Forster. Robert Forster and uh, uh, Dark Hair, Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. Um, yeah, I watched 20 minutes of that movie, and then the DVD I was watching gave out, so I, I don't know what else happens in it. Everybody's it a critic, weird. even your DVD player. Yeah, it's like, nope, no more, too weird, too weird. It's all in sepia tone. It's being quite literal with the title. Uh, yeah, so it was a controversial novel. It's about a murder on an army base, and uh, the characters may or may not be homosexual in it. Um, it's like... This is Reflections of the Golden yeah, Eye. Yeah, Reflections yeah. of a Golden Eye. Um, I, I don't know, because I didn't get to watch past 20 minutes of it. But uh, he adapts that. The executives at Seven Arts, they like his work so much. And they're like, this Coppola kid, this screenplay is so good. You know why? Because he knows the South. So we're going to give him another work about the South to adapt. And that was the one-act play... This property is condemned by Tennessee Williams. I wonder what the one-act play is like. Because the plot of this... I mean, the movie felt like a play, which is part of the problem. Yeah. The problem with a lot of movies based on plays where it's just sort of... You're just kind of hanging out in a room, talking. 
It's hanging out in a room okay. with people that, <laughs> to be interesting have, and dramatic, have to be like also kind of insufferable. Mm-hmm. So you're just in the, you're just stuck in the room. Insufferable people, because it's written like a play, so they're really giving you the symbolism and the characters to reach the, the back row of the theater. But it's a movie, so it feels just kind of a little over the top. Yeah. Um, so when Coppola was at Hofstra University, he uh, he did do a production of this one-act play, so he's familiar with the material. And uh, he wrote a draft, and then it got rewritten and rewritten. He shares screenwriting credit with Fred Coe and Edith Summer. Yes, you are correct. <laughs> All right. Uh, and uh, reading interviews with him, uh, the way he tells it is that his original draft got rewritten to the point that what is on screen is not his version of the story. Uh, that also happened with Reflections in the Golden Eye, but to the point where... Uh, He's not even credited. Yeah, his name for that. isn't even on that because <clears throat> it had so many writers. And what I read too was that this movie was still being rewritten as they were filming, so they didn't even have finished pages for a lot of the days they were filming, and the actors winged it a lot of the time, which isn't the best idea for a movie based on a play by Tennessee Williams to just be like, yeah, I'll just wing it, just kind of make up what you're gonna say. Like, that works for just maybe some indie <laughs> drama where it's yeah. going to have some loose nature to the scene. But if you're, like, basing it on a play by a writer who's very familiar, where the public's very familiar with his tone and, his and like, the way he writes, and you're just having people kind of make things up as they <laughs> go along, works to leave the weapon for. Doesn't work for a Tennessee Williams movie. Um, and I can't imagine what that's like to try to make up and improvise, like, a serious movie that's that's not some improvised you know like a loose thing uh, yeah so should we talk about the plot of the movie yeah so the who's who did it last week did i do dementia no you did it dementia 13 yes so I i'll do this properly did, I think. yeah all right so basically it's a pretty you know it's based on a play it's a pretty basic idea in my opinion so you have this like kind of f- framework of this little girl little girl me like a teen he's this teen girl uh, played by um, the lady from uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, Mary Badham. Mary Badham, and it's kind of her telling this kid like, ah, yeah, this place used to be this great place. This is where my mom and this crazy life, and she is referring to this giant kind of uh, hotel type place that she still lives in, even though it's condemned. It has a sign up that says this property is condemned, so she still kind of squats in this building. Uh, and then we kind of go to the flashback of the glory days, which could have been more than a few years before this framework because she's she about looks the same exactly age. the same. And basically, like the house, it's it's like it's like a boarding house, like hotel sort of thing. But it could also be it just also feels like where just people get drunk and just like have sex and kind of like party all night long. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's the like hot a, spot. It's of the this hot town. spot in this tiny little town, and the town. Main industry is everybody uh, working on the railroad and doing things for the railroad company. And so Robert Redford comes into town. So he comes in on the rails. His name is Owen Legate. And he's riding a train and he hops off the train. And you're like, man, that's like the handsomest, most clean, you know, like hobo traveling the rails I've ever seen. You're like, well, he's not a hobo traveling the rails. He works for the railroad company. And he's there to basically lay off everybody because he doesn't like they just don't need all these people working for the railroad anymore. So he but but the but he's staying at this boarding house where all the railroad guys like to party and they like to party with the lady who runs the boarding house. Uh, and also they mostly like to look at her daughter played by Natalie Wood named Elva Starr. And so they all like to pretend they're there for the lady who runs the place, but they really just want to look at her hot like young daughter. And they're all just drinking all that. Like Charles Bronson's intro as a character is grabbing a lady's bottom and then you paint up and you, sh- you tilt up and you show that it's a young, handsome Charles Bronson. <laughs> and Robert Blake shows up drunk with his tie loosened and he's just like stumbling around the kitchen. And that's sort of the beginning of the movie. And Robert Redford's just sort of there. No one really knows why he's there. And then it, they find out that he's there to just fire everybody and ruin this town and ruin everybody's lives. Even though he doesn't like doing that, but it's just his job. He has to do it. But by the time that's happened, 
Natalie Wood has already fallen for him, and they're already like in this sort of like pre-romance, and but that's a problem because all the railroad dudes love Natalie Wood and love hanging out at this uh, this this place, uh, and then basically. <clears throat> For some, but somehow this fills in two hours <laughs> of just like this romance where all these people get laid off. There's some drama where like uh, there's there's this, this guy, this older creepy guy whose wife is sick, and he really likes Natalie Wood clearly for creepy reasons. Yeah, Natalie Wood's and, mom is uh, like wants her to, to just like, sleep with these creeps yeah. to for like just so they can have a better life. Like maybe they'll move to another town. And, like, she can just kind of, like, be this dude's mistress. Yeah, she'll be, like, and, taken uh, care of uh, or provided for, you know. Not the best mom. Uh, and then you have the guys who are jealous and hate Robert Redford. Because all these railroad dudes are railroad dudes. They're the opposite of Robert Redford. It's Charles Bronson. is Robert Blake. These are, like, sweaty, like, classic Tennessee Williams-type guys. Like, just uber-masculine, sweaty, southern, just, like, just like salt-of-the-earth sort of guys. And then you have fancy pants... Robert Redford, wearing his little newsy cap, first of many newsy caps. Uh, Robert Redford, the huh. only actor to really pull off the newsy cap look. Yeah. Right? Like, he wears one in the sting. Like he's You're just right. like He's a really... He's the only guy that really pull off... Other than the movie Newsies, which has a million newsy caps. But, like, most dudes look really stupid in a newsy cap. Especially, like, Brooklyn hipsters down in a newsy cap just look like jackasses. There are many but, photos of me in a newsy <laughs> cap to prove this. There's many what? Many photos of me in a newsy <laughs> cap that But Robert us. Redford, he looks he looks amazing in a newsy cap. It's so much that Hollywood's like, let's keep putting that hat on that guy time and time again up until the eighties. Let's just put a newsy cap on Robert Redford. In my mind his closet just has like a plethora of newsy caps <laughs> left over from the hey, his heyday. So they don't like him. Uh, there's a lot of like fisty cuffs, there's a lot of like peep People beating up, you know, Robert Redford and just kind of being dr- – everyone just kind of being drunk and sweaty and violent. And then um, there's like this kind of weird drama of like Natalie Wood's character really wants to get out of this town and just like see the world and go to big cities. She really wants to go to New Orleans. New Orleans. And Robert Redford's like, well, you know what? I live in New Orleans. You come with me and we'll do this. And then there's this weird miscommunication thing where she – where he is told by Natalie Wood's mom, like, oh, well, no, she's going off with this creepy dude with us to this other place. And Robert Redford has already bought the ticket for New Orleans. He's all crushed. And he goes and he chews at Natalie Wood and says, like, his heart is broken. And then she is, hates her mom because of this. And, like, for whatever reason, Robert Redford, instead of, like, asking her about the truth and just having any normal conversation like a human being, he just assumed that what her weird mom said was true and just, like, stormed away in a huff all mad and went back to New Orleans alone. And so then she, to get back at her mom, was like, well, fine. I'll marry Charles Bronson. I'll show you. So she marries Charles Bronson and then just steals all his money (laughs) and then decides to go to New Orleans anyways and just see if Robert Redford will take her. And he does. Uh, And then the ending doesn't make any sense where it's like the mom shows up and it's like, ha-ha, She's actually married to Charles Bronson. And Robert Redford's like, no. And then Natalie Wood's like, no. And she runs away. And then like, oh, yeah. And then she died of like lung cancer or whatever at the end. Yeah, she and runs. like, wait, what? <laughs> uh, that's how it happens. Yeah. She, she runs off into the street and it's raining. And then cut back to uh, Mary Baden. And she's like, yeah, she got sick. She got a lung infection and died. died. And then mom ran off with some guy. So and then, now I just And now this place is abandoned. And they're like, okay. But, the like, <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me that Robert Redford, like, again, it's like, if they just had, like, an actual conversation, like, he knows Natalie Wood's character well enough that he, if she was like, yeah, I was mad at my mom, I married that dude, and I just took his money to come here, I'm sure Robert Redford's character would be like, oh, yeah, that seems very much in your character to do that. Like, okay, like, you don't love, you clearly don't actually like this guy. It'll be complicated when we want to get married, because you're already <laughs> married, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> But it's just weird how it just ends on that note of like him being like, what? And her being like, no. And then like, and then she died. It's like, okay. <laughs> it's kind of wrapped it up quickly. Yeah. Uh, that was like the, the stretching of <laughs> stretching of the material. And then it finally reached the breaking point. And it's like, uh, it's over. And the only lit up of her lung thing is like some parts of the movie she like coughs and goes, oh, it's a little tough to breathe. And you're like, oh, I wonder if this will come into play later. Yeah, so it's uh, the Tennessee Williams play, so I'd assume it's like tuberculosis. Or, I mean, I fought pneumonia since she ran out into the rain. Yeah. Either way, you know, it's a drama. So she mysteriously gets sick and dies. <laughs> 
Um, the movie, like we said, is a very professional Hollywood type movie. Edith Head did all the costumes. James Wong Hao was the cinematographer. Um, it looks slick. Nothing really like it's sort of the like there's nothing really to write home about in terms of the filmmaking. It is pretty straightforward. It does just feel like a movie version of a play. Like the filmmaking isn't really there's nothing really filmic about it, nothing really cinematic. Like the beginning, there's some shots going along the railroad, like they put a camera in front of some the car and drove it over the railroad. But like the rest is just sort of like people in a room talking, hanging out. Um, like we said, really heavy-handed symbolism. There's like a train car that uh, is named after Natalie Wood's character, and it just stayed in this one spot and never left. So it's just like, kind of like collecting dust and hasn't really lived its life as a train car. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she has a conversation about like property, like I'm not going to be anyone's property or something like that. Um, so, yeah, really heavy-handed with the title. Um, I read somewhere, I don't know if it's true that the one-act play for this is only like four pages long. <laughs> I feel like it has to be a little bit longer. It's just one of the scenes in the movie, and they just base the whole thing around it. Yeah. It's short. That's definitely a one-act play. So you can definitely see like the Tennessee Williams influence in here. You've got like the scheming mother... Like from Glass Menagerie. Everyone's oversexed. Yeah, everyone's oversexed. The the female heroine, is, the female lead, is n- things are not going to end well for her. It's Tennessee Williams. Uh, is female leads, they don't uh, generally end up well. And then it's Natalie Wood on top of that, and things usually don't work out well for her in <laughs> in a romantic movie. It worked out for well for when she's a kid when she. Proved that Santa Claus was real, and then after that, it never worked out well yeah. for her in a movie again. I guess Tennessee Williams hated this movie so much, he wanted his name taken off. He didn't want anyone to know that he had anything to do with it. He clearly failed at that. His name is all over the movie. But he did not He did not care for it. Was there a bunch of Tennessee Williams stuff that was so popular at the time that they had to like just base some movie on a one-act, four-page play? Just be like, he's neat, and there's a rush into filming when you don't have a finished script. Was like, no, we need, we need to put out this Tennessee Williams movie like now. I, like what? Because like, Tennessee Williams was like basically always popular. I mean, there was a lot of uh, adaptations of him in like the fifties, like mm-hmm. Streetcar Named Desire, Cat on the Hot Tin Roof. Um, when was the movie version of The Glass Menagerie? Was that around this time? Uh, the Glass Menagerie was adapted in nineteen fifty. That starred Jane Wyman and Kirk Douglas. Mm-hmm. And then it was later adapted in the 80s with John Malkovich and Karen Allen. Yeah. But in the 60s, you had, like, you had Sweet Bird of Youth. You had Night of the Iguana. So, like, they were still cranking them out. And then this movie came out. It didn't do well. And that kind of slowed down a bit, <laughs> the adaptations of... Tennessee Williams, and there never really was one very popular again. Like after this, you had uh, that really weird uh, Last of the Mobile Hot Shots based on his play, directed by Sidney Lumet. That's some weird movie where it's James Coburn uh, getting married to Lynn Redgrave and taking her back to his little weird house. And that's a strange movie, not a movie that lit the world on fire. Uh, you know, there's like a lot of TV movies, and it's just sort of like, it just sort of. Just sort of the, the, the thing died. It, just, it wasn't popular anymore. People were into more modern, maybe they were into like Edward Albee plays or something by the time. Uh, oh, yeah, 66. You know, like, uh, uh, 66 uh, is when Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf came yeah, out. So it sort of, sort of changed the game for play adaptations of movies. So they're, they're like, like, I think this sort of like more exaggerated type of writing of this, like this southern sort of like, we're going to play. We're sweaty. I'm gonna yell my lines. Like I think you get into more modern type stuff by the time you're in the '60s, and um, and then you get into like you know hair and oh Calcutta, and these want naked hippies on stage by the late '60s. So like this movie does feel a little like it does feel like you're on the you're at the end of of, of the Hollywood thing. Like this doesn't feel edgy. It doesn't feel like it's has anything to do with the times. That's going on, like the crazy times going on in America and the world, 
And I think that's why these types of movies then kind of are going away. And yeah. And, and that's also why eventually Francis Ford Coppola won't be working on these types of movies much longer. It definitely feels like like a studio packaged movie, right? They've got Natalie Wood. All right, we're gonna have a comeback vehicle for her. So we're, let's get you know that young hot new actor Robert Redford. What did he did, what did he had done before this to kind of make him the new like the hot actor? Like what was Robert Redford's big sort of like it's Robert Redford? Like what was the thing that made everybody kind of go ooh Robert Redford? I believe it was Barefoot in the Park. Okay. Uh, Barefoot in the Park was the year after this. So was uh, this like his big like before this he he was in the chase and inside Daisy Clover. Okay, so the chase was a big movie. Marlon Brando. All right, so he's up um, and coming. Up and coming, young handsome guy. Yeah. I've never. It's weird. I've never really liked Robert Redford. I'm starting. I'm starting to kind of get into him now a little bit, but forever I've just found him so. To me, it's just like looking at one of those paint cards of different colors of white, and you can't tell the difference. <laughs> and you're just like, I don't know. It's just like white. I don't know. It's just sort of like it just he just is there. He's handsome. He's capable, but like he doesn't really. I'm not like in my mind thinking like, oh, I can't wait to watch that Robert Redford movie to see what he's gonna do. Like he's he's very Kevin Costner to me. Like I feel the same way about Kevin Costner. Of like you you do know how to act. You went to the school. You know how to do. It. You do it better than most. You are very handsome. But that's you're just kind of like a handsome guy. You're just kind of there. You're handsome. I'm not really interested. I'm not like I'm not finding you interesting. And I've always felt that way about Robert Redford, including the movies he directs. Like I love to me some quiz show, but like that movie is not for everybody. And then you get into his fly fishing movies and other things, and you're just sort of like, okay, you're like, you're just like a guy. Like this is what you're into. You, you like, I, 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 like. Like, Paul Newman is much more interesting than Robert Redford to me. I am more interested yeah. in Paul Newman. He's more interesting to look at. Like, as an actor, he's more interesting. His salad dressings are all very good. But, like, Robert Redford is just sort of like... But I guess I felt the same way about Brad Pitt. Like, I feel Brad Pitt and Robert Redford maybe are similar in a way of, like, if you just, like, can know how to tap into that some weird little weird thing, you can, like, kind of bend it a bit and get something interesting. I feel like with both actors, yeah. their star persona... Can work against them if, like, the script, if their character isn't strong enough, if the story isn't uh, engrossing enough. Because, like, the Sting, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, like, you know, Fight Club uh, for Brad Pitt, and uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Since I just saw that, throw that (laughs) in there. Um, Where it's like, oh, like, like you get wrapped up in the story, but if it's the story's not really strong. You're just you're watching a Brad Pitt movie or a Robert Redford movie, so you're just watching them be the the movie star. And they're not as interesting of a movie star as other people who can actually like I don't know like a movie that stars Nicolas Cage could be much more interesting because he does a little more than just stand there and look handsome. And I I mean I'm not trying to knock Robert Redford. I'm just saying he's not a bad actor. He's a great actor, and he definitely has that undeniable star power. But there's just some kind of a blandness, like a whiteness to him, that I just get bored with. <laughs> it's kind of it's why I've never seen a Dances with Wolves and why I've never seen a Field of Dreams, because Kevin Costner to me is just like, yep, you're there, you're you know how to act. I'm not denying that. Those are some of his best movies. Though. You're just a guy. Like to me, I'm not getting excited. Like maybe because I'm more of a character actor guy than a leading man guy. You know, like, I've also never really been crazy about, like, Denzel Washington, because I feel like he's just sort of, like, he's, he's good, but, like, when you're just sort of, like, you're, you're good, but I want, like, something, I want to think that you're more than, like, you're, you're doing something different than you would be in real life. Like, that you are, like, really disappearing in a character, and it's hard to not watch a Robert Redford movie and be like, yep, Robert Redford, and I, yep, Kevin Costner, like, Brad Pitt is a little different in that he clearly is a character actor trapped in a handsome man's body, which is also the George Clooney thing. And Jake Gyllenhaal. Where you're just like, you were born handsome, but you are weird in your mind, and you want to do interesting, weird things. And Brad Pitt has been able to occasionally, in his best roles, like in 12 Monkeys, 
or like burn after reading, like really play a weird something different and interesting and weird. And Even in Fight Club, like it was his idea that after a spoiler alert for a movie that's twenty years old, um, <laughs> you find out that him and Tyler Durden and Jack the narrator are the same person. It was Brad Pitt's idea that okay now. Tyler Durden should have his head shaved and wear this like feather boa and have an entirely different physical look and be like yeah okay that's Brad Pitt the character <laughs> actor saying like okay now I want to do something really crazy and, and Matthew McConaughey is the same way like he when he's allowed to tap into whatever his strange ideas are are really strange and really weird and he brings a lot of that to the movie like his weird little uh, chest pounding thing he does in mm-hmm. Wolf of Wall Street like he that's all him like that's 100% him but he couldn't help but be born very handsome uh, Robert, these, are, these are all actors I would include Redford that like I mean they are talented people and they are professional people so like if you just want them to say these lines this way they'll do I, it alright I'll do it so they have all made you know, kind of bland, <laughs> kind of bland movies where the only thing going is their natural star persona. Yeah, because like when you watch a movie like this and you have Robert Redford next to like Charles Bronson, you're like, man, that that Charles Bronson guy, he's got something. There's something weird and interesting going on with whoever that actor is, and it makes sense that that guy, only a few years later, will become like a huge star because he has something very special. There's something about Charles, like the way he talks is different. The way he looks is different. And, you know, Death Wish is only, what, six, seven years after this? It's like 71 or something like that. Like, Once Upon a Time in the West is only a few years after, like, the, a few. Oh, yeah, that's like, like very 69. Soon, yeah. And, like, he has something very unique about him. And Robert Blake, the same, like, Robert Blake barely says anything in this movie. But there's something really weird and interesting about him. You're like, there's something weird about this weird little guy. Who you know you're you're a short actor when you look small next to Natalie Wood who you know is not tall <laughs> and that guy still looks tiny next to Natalie Wood but like Robert Blake doesn't say much but like there's just something in the way he is it's just very fascinating and very weird so the studio they get actor you know they get some good actors like okay what's a good source like a good serious source material that's gonna you know really like have some weight behind it. Win all the Oscars! Yeah, win all the Oscars. Like, all right, like, uh, Tennessee Williams. Get that new kid, Coppola. He'll do the adaptation. And that's how this movie happened. And they rewrote his thing, and so his his voice isn't even in there. And I feel like we haven't even, in this podcast, we haven't really discovered what his voice is yet. No. So, like, it'll be interesting, because we're going to go through some more of the movies he wrote for Hollywood for over the next year. And then we're gonna get into his uh, f- uh, his first sort of like true directorial movie, like like Dementia Thirteen was him doing like a quick thing for Corman. We're about to get into Your Big Boy Now, which is like his first more pers- more personal movie. And then we're still very close to The Godfather too. Like it's just like it's weird to think like this is 1966. The Godfather's just if not too far after this, but like man, it's gonna be such a leap. From these movies, yeah, to what some say is the greatest film of all time. No, it really uh, is the only it's, way this movie is interesting in uh, respect to Coppola's body of work is to look at it as part of his whole body of work. Like, um, you know, this is a small, intimate movie just about the uh, uh, drama and relationships of people on a very like personal level and he would do something similar with the rain people a few years later and uh, throughout his career he was always saying that he wanted to make small personal movies so this is sort of I mean this is in that vein Uh, who knows how much of his original script his original vision made it to the screen that's the only way I can fit this and he, into Coppola's like body of work. And it's interesting because he will make these movies like be one of the leaders of New Hollywood for sure, but still kind of do it within like the big Hollywood system. Like Godfather is by no means a small indie movie. Not not neither is Apocalypse Now or The Conversation. So he is working on the level of like big big Hollywood, but is able to eventually in a few years make like very personal 
in movies that like really mean a lot to him and really have something different and interesting to say. And this is also part of the time where like with this comedy stuff where he's just kind of trying everything. Like he's kind of learning what to do. Like he was assistant director on some other Corman type movies and like the Young Racers and uh, a few years, uh, two years after this, the Wild Racers. Uh, like he is just kind of trying different things out and like now he's like trying to write him just to write a just be a screenwriter like not even try to direct this movie just like i'll write a script for you and you pay me and i'll have the experience it was just the experience of writing the thing because you asked me to do it and what an interesting experience it would be to learn how to work within the studio system yeah he was an in-house writer at this set at the studio seven arts and that's like one of the last vestiges of the old studio system having like departments, the story department, you had your writers on contract, uh, under contract on staff to you. They wrote movies for this studio. You just gave them an assignment or maybe they came up with their own ideas. Um, that does not happen anymore, I don't <laughs> believe. Uh, so, and then New Hollywood, I mean, this New Hollywood really happens, takes off a few years later, and the old studio system then, like, all that remains crumbles away. And this year, 1966, we will, our next episode will be another a movie that he wrote uh, called... Um, Is Paris Burning? Is Paris Burning? And then this year, 1966, he also wrote and or wrote and directed You're a Big Boy Now, which was sort of like his first like real movie, some would say. Uh, so it's a very interesting time. Like he's making money, he's writing scripts, he's able to make one of his movie, like a real movie, as a director. Um, very it's a very interesting time and then it's a big year. It is a big know? year for him, uh, for sure. And we're you know, Godfather's seventy two, so we're we're getting up on that, but he's gonna still write a few more scripts. Uh, direct a few little movies and kind of get his footing and like this kind of filmmaker doesn't sadly doesn't really exist anymore where you don't really have the guy so much where you're like you're working up through the ranks and you're kind of learning how to do it and then you make the fucking godfather like I feel like now like this is going to turn into old man on the porch complaining uh, I'm going to try not to make this too ranking. it's something we've touched on but uh, it's just you're, you're going to be indie filmmaker you make your one movie and then you make your Star Wars movie or your Marvel movie and then you're done like either yeah. you succeed and you keep making that or you fail and we never hear from you again and maybe make a Netflix movie or something but like this idea of like I'm doing sound. I'm doing editing. I'm helping this guy with his thing. I'm co-directing this. I'm like I'm re-editing this weird movie. I'm I'm redubbing this thing. Like just kind of learning every little thing about how to make a movie. So you kind of you're aware of every department. And I feel that yeah. And then it's uh, okay if you then if your next project you just wrote. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Like that. I feel like the the egos of um, of like the young filmmakers now. Uh, mainly just because this is how they've been raised is like once you direct movies you're a director you, you don't go back to like <laughs> just being a writer or to like you know do a few days like work as an editor or something well, that's why I really like like Steven Soderbergh where he will like he like Magic, Magic Mike the second one he just was the cinematographer on it you know like he wasn't he wasn't even the director now he let somebody else direct it or he will just edit, re-edit someone else's movie, or do some weird, you know, just weird little thing, and just kind of tinker with things because he he's hot shit. He doesn't care. He's Steven Soderbergh, and he's but he's gonna do all these little things. Yeah. And I like I like I like that. Like I like a filmmaker who isn't just like no, I'm a filmmaker. It's like no, you can write. Like wouldn't it be cool if like Tarantino also just quickly wrote some good scripts for some other filmmakers so while he's taking his time on the one he's gonna direct? You know, just sort of like. He used to do that at the beginning, but not. But a lot of those were like leftover scripts he just had in a pile, and then once he made it big, everyone's like, "Give like us natural what, born what, killers." What do you got? Yeah. You know, like from Dustal Dawn and stuff like that. But uh, I, I think that would be great if, like, oh, Martin Scorsese, he just like just wrote that guy's movie. Yeah. You know, he's had an idea. It's been a month. <laughs> wrote it. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Um, a podcast I listen to and I'm a big fan of called This Had Oscar Buzz uh, recently. Those hosts, Joe Reed and Chris File, sort of touched on what we talked about, how the, the path of 
uh, for like a young filmmaker used to be like, you know, you cut your teeth on indies, you do your work, and then you get a studio movie, but you get like a mid range, a mid level studio movie, like maybe a thriller, something <laughs> with a modest budget, but it's not like a big blockbuster. Mm-hmm. And then maybe then you get the big blockbuster. Yeah, that's. But Hollywood doesn't make those kind of movies anymore. Like, no. Movies like The Firm or The Pelican Brief, The Firm directed by Sidney Pollack. Right? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Circle back. Um, you know, so then you make one of those movies and you get like more skill, more practice, and then you get the big. The bigger movie. You know, the big blockbuster. And the movie, movie. The movies were better then because like you just had. It's just like we like like the nineties was all all about this lesson. You have someone like and you had somewhere and their uh, argument was Hollywood doesn't make those middle ground movies anymore. So you get guys going just from like the indie movie to the huge blockbuster movie. Yeah, but even the little indie movies don't even feel like little indie movies anymore. Like your little indie movie still costs ten million dollars and stars Jennifer Garner, and you're like, this isn't an indie movie. Like this is still like a big. Movie like like you're not getting stuff on the level of like a clerks where it's like people and their friends like making a weird thing off like them maxing out their own credit card and just making a thing. Kevin Smith, great example. Someone who made a little movie, made a slightly bigger movie with Mallrats, went back to make a littler movie again with Chase Amy, and then made an even bigger movie with Dogma. And like and then and then was kind of like he was able to kind of kind of ride this back and forth. Now he's kind of stuck in just kind of making his own weird little thing. But, or like Alexander Payne slowly building up to making like uh, sideways, you know, going from Citizen Ruth, which is a more smaller thing, to Election, which is a little bigger, to sideways, which is even bigger than about Schmidt. You're working with Jack Nicholson, and you have this sort of in Soderbergh we mentioned earlier, same thing. Like you make your weird little sexualized videotape, then you're then you're making a big thing, you make a little thing, you make an even bigger thing. Now you're making a movie with George Clooney, and your movies still have a voice. And I think this is what we're getting with Coppola is like he is going to still have his voice because he's not just quickly directing some big thing. He's like, he's doing little stuff. He's writing. He's going to direct a little thing. He's doing this little thing. And he's going to build up to be able to keep, to maintain like a, a, a vision of, a, of like a unique artist, a unique entertainer. And yeah, people today, you make your movie, then you direct your fucking terrible Jurassic World movie. Yeah, you make your 10 million <laughs> then, indie movie. And then you're done. And then you're done because then you make your, you can't, you don't remember how to make an indie movie anymore because you didn't grow as an artist or a filmmaker. And there's nowhere, uh, and then there's nowhere for them to go. Like, if we still had the mid-level, the like, the studio movie that between like 30 and 60 million dollars. Yeah. If we still had that then there'd be somewhere for these movies, these filmmakers to go if yeah. like, all right, they did their indie, they did a blockbuster, it didn't work. Okay, you go back down to just like, uh, to mid, mid-range mid thrillers because that's what, the last one you made of those was good. So you're it, just going to work there from now on. It's interesting. I think there are a few filmmakers who still do it, like Darren Aronofsky, like Noah, huge movie, and then makes Mother, which is a smaller, weirder thing. And But he's left over from the 90s, like Pi was the 90s. So why is he, he's able to figure out how to do these sort of like up down, make an Oscar movie, make a weird art film, like you make the fountain, which clearly has a little bit of a budget, then you make the wrestler, which has a lower budget, but it's like you're kind of able to kind of go up and down and up and down uh, and still and still be Darren Aronofsky and still be interesting and weird and have your your take on the storytelling. Um, but like these, these young kids, man, they just want that Captain you know America. They just want that Star Wars. And that's and then they just that's it, and they make these uh, movies that have no character. Like we're getting bland Hollywood movies, without like it, because it's great when you're like, oh wow, like that person, like Wes Anderson's making a movie with a huge budget. Like what's that going to be like? And then you watch something like uh, Life Aquatic, and you're like, oh, this is like his version of gunplay, his version of like a weird action scene, but this guy who made these weird little movies. And now these big movies just are nothing. They just don't feel like anything. Because when you're working with something like Disney or Marvel or Star Wars, they have so much control. It's so much like committee-made movie. And you have to go through a million people that your voice is going to be squashed. Like you're not going to be allowed to be interesting. Like somehow James Gunn has been able to figure out how, like, I'll make my weird version of a Marvel movie my way. But somehow, that's yeah, kind of it. Like, that's a big reason why Kevin Smith... Uh, and his producer Scott Moser turned down directing the Green Hornet, right? Yeah, the one. I that... didn't know they were gonna do that yeah. before it was Michelle Gondry. Yeah, yeah, that's it. The Green Hornet. I always get confused with the Green Lantern, even though they're obviously different things. Um, yeah, they were gonna do the Green Hornet, 
and it was going to be the biggest budget movie Kevin Smith ever made and the pre-production like meetings with executives and whatnot was going on forever and eventually his producer Scott Moser told him like dude like we shouldn't do this because at the end of the day it's not our movie it's a movie by committee anything we want to do has to be like approved by all the executives all the movie stars and then we can maybe try something so he didn't do the Green Hornet he did you know Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back or something instead <laughs> but it's great thing about it's interesting about Coppola is that like new and new Hollywood in general is that like you had these little movies that are going to soon happen after 66 with like Easy Rider and things that were a low budget uh, movie but then the Godfather and like you know Taxi Driver and all these things that are going to start happening are Hollywood movies like they are what Hollywood movies were for a short time where they were big budget stars in them but they were just these weird, like, you know, like, tr- like full yeah, of truth. It was... And the kind of dirty and just sort of, like, they knew, they figured out a way to make the system be their system. It was uh, a, it was this short-lived but awesome time when the kids got to steer the ship. You know, so they were making the movies they wanted to their weird way, and it was a big studio movie. With the budget. Like, yeah. Pop-Ups now is an expensive movie and he was able to do whatever the fuck he wanted in those jungles and then eventually (laughs) I mean you know no one no one bats a thousand uh, except for Charles Lawton who only directed Night of the Hunter and then nothing else yeah no one bats a thousand so by the end of the 70s early 80s they were starting to make some some like you know maybe not so good (laughs) lackluster movies and then the studios just jumped at that chance. Okay, you actually don't know what you're talking about. We're taking it back. We're just going to make Jaws sequels now. Yeah. And it's, it, is this, is the, this property condemned 1966, so we're on the cusp of new, new Hollywood. And, you know, Bonnie and Clyde uh, is going to happen in the next year, 1967. So, 67, you're going to get into Bonnie and Clyde, you're going to get into Graduate, you're going to get into 2001 A Space Odyssey. Like, things are going to shift pretty radically um, and so it'll be interesting to see Coppola be a part of that shift and this is sort of like him on the other side right now him just kind of playing the nice like yes I will write your Tennessee Williams Robert Redford movie and we're going to slowly gonna get him into like this one of weirder a few small weird things and then get into like big big weird things big new things and it's very exciting I think we're only going to each each episode of the podcast the movie's going to just get better and more exciting, I think, for a while. Mm-hmm. Until, like you said, the 70s crash and burn and we get into like, this kind of no man's land of the early 80s. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I'm, exci- I'm excited to, to build the, this building that's going to happen with filmmaker. One other thing to follow up on. Uh, last week we talked about Matthew Fox Wines, which are actually, sadly not affiliated with the actor Matthew Fox. Yes, it is. Is it not? No. No? no it's, it's a just, different Matthew Fox? It's just a name. Yeah, like it's owned... What? It's owned by some, uh, like, n- like notable wine group. But... And Matthew Fox is just, like, a name they slapped on the label. But but is it supposed to be associated with him, Matthew Fox? No. Or is it just, like, we're just going to call it Matthew we're Fox? We're just going to call it Matthew and Fox. How can they get away with that? I don't know. I mean, I guess it's it's theoretically a common name. But, like, clearly he's, like, a famous guy from Lost. <laughs> <laughs> the whole time I've been drinking these wines thinking, like, I'm supporting this cool actor. Like, he's cool in, a, in a, you know, Bone Tomahawk and whatever. Are you sure? Are I, you sure about this? I looked it up, and the only thing I could find about Matthew Fox and wine was a story from a local... New Zealand yeah, newspaper, right? That he visited like our local vineyard when he was on vacation, and he said these wines are amazing. That's the quote, stating these wines are amazing. But don't couldn't it be possible that he said these amazing wines? I must make amazing wine of my own in California. <laughs> I have the money. I have that lost money. I have that party of five money. Man, I like. I'm never gonna buy that wine again. I I feel totally ripped off. I really thought that he had to do with that wine. Yeah. It has a picture of a fox on it. It's called Matthew Fox. You can't do that. That's a straight up lie. 
Shame so, on you, Matthew no, we, Fox. So we need <laughs> we so, need pictures of actors' faces on the wine bottle to know, like yeah. with a newspaper of the current date. Yeah. So if anyone between the last time I just bought some Matthew Fox, when I'm thinking they were supporting their favorite actor, Matthew Fox, I deeply apologize. <laughs> How was I to know? Why would you not assume that it was the same person? I yeah, I mean, I automatically assumed too, and then. Uh, or, so did you find evidence that definitely wasn't, or did you not find evidence that it definitely was? I did not find evidence supporting. So it, it could still be true. I mean, if the absence of evidence is evidence, <laughs> you know, it's a slippery slope. It can, if this was court, I would say you don't have the evidence to prove that he didn't do it, so he could do it. He could have done it. This could be his secret thing, and maybe he's so modest. He doesn't want to be like he doesn't want to be interviewed about it. He doesn't want people to know that he, like he sure his name is on the label, but he just wants people to enjoy the good wine. They don't want to have to think this because he's Matthew Fox that he buy the wine. They want to buy the wine because it's a good wine. Well, we definitely know that Francis Coppola made this wine. This is definitely this Coppola wine is the Francis Ford Coppola. That is a fact. Yes, and I know this because he's Italian American. And wine is made in Italy, so I'm drawing the conclusion that Francis Coppola wine, even though made in California, <laughs> is made by this Italian-American named Francis Coppola. And he's got a little champagne named after his daughter, Sophia. So how many other Francis Coppola... Actually, I guess those are all pretty common Italian names, so maybe there's another Francis Coppola with a daughter named Sophia... <laughs> Who also, who also makes, also makes wines in the same place where the director lives. You know, it's a weird world. You never know. This Matthew Fox thing has really got me steamed. All right. We've, we've gone off the rails <laughs> at this point. It's very hot in Texas right now. It's very hot. Um, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this. Uh, we hope you... Uh, will join us next time uh, we're on Twitter at Directors Wall or you can email us at thedirectorswall at gmail.com and uh, please tune in next time where, where we will be in Paris and ask is Paris burning? <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye Bye